Well, I want us tonight to return to our study of the Gospel of John, and so if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And as you do that, I just want to begin once again and remind us, as we've done throughout our study, of the intent of John as he's writing what he does in order to ensure that when we look at what is taking place in John chapter 11, that we keep it in mind throughout our study. We should all be well acquainted by now with the purpose of why John writes what he writes, right? Because we've noted it several times. It's very clear concerning his purpose as to why he's telling us what he's telling us here in John chapter 10 and John chapter 11 and throughout the gospel, because in John chapter 20 and verse 31, he tells us why he put it here. He wrote these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the result of that believing that we may have life in his name. So each and every time we come upon a new event, a new Vignette, a new picture, a new portion in which is a narrative in this gospel, we need to be asking the question, how does this event, how does this vignette, this picture, this idea, this portion that John has given us, how does it point us to that very purpose? How does it shine forth and and illustrate or show the very purpose of why John wrote, what do we learn about Christ as the Son of God from the event that we have before us so that it helps us solidify the belief that we have as Christians in who Jesus Christ is and so that those who may not be believers who hear these things would come to believe that Jesus is in fact who he said he is, the Christ. And so in answering that question, I want us to move slowly through John chapter 11 and glean what we can from the event itself and also from those involved in the event. Because not only are we learning about Jesus and who he is, but we are learning about Jesus from the impact that he's had on the lives of those who were involved in the events in which we have before us so that when we come on the other side of this event, when we come on the other side of these texts here, we, we will know our great God more than when we began. And then through that understanding, through that knowledge, we will come to worship Christ in a way that he truly deserves. So I want to begin tonight by reading for us John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. And then just focus our time primarily on just the first six verses of that text. And I'll just give you a quick hint, of course, we'll be in the first six verses, but we really won't get all that far. Beginning in John chapter 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, 
but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. From the time to time in talking with individuals about Jesus Christ, you've may hear someone argue that the reason there are so many unbelievers, the reason there are so many people who, who do not believe in God is because God has not done all that He could to convince them of the truth of His divine revelation. In essence, they, they argue that God has done a lot. He certainly has revealed Himself to mankind, but He just hasn't done enough. In other words, what he has done is insufficient. That God himself, in fact, is insufficient, and it is proven, they say, by the fact that not all men believe. This is not a new argument. This is not a new way in which the reasoning of men begin to reason about God. It was that very argument that filled the streets of Christ's day. Religious leaders, as we know, through our study of John chapter 10, they had said to him, if you are the Christ, then prove it to us. Who are you? Speak to us plainly. I mean, you're not being very plain. If you are the Christ, show us a sign. Do something great enough that it will convince all of us to believe that with which you claim. Well, since we have the word of God, You and I here today have right on our laps or on our electronic device, however it is, we have the Word of God and the benefit of history by God's grace. We're some 2,000 plus years from the history of these words. We know by the Word of God and by experience that God has, in fact, given enough evidence for man to believe. We even saw this morning in the reality of general revelation that God gives enough Information for man to know who he is, and he has given enough special revelation about his son to believe that he is the Christ. And we also know from the Word of God that the reason that man does not believe uh, is because, first of all, that he cannot, he is so 
dead in his sin that he cannot believe and will not believe because his spiritual heart is darkened. He is by nature a child of wrath. So God has already proved sufficiently who he is. And yet, amazingly, by his grace, and in spite of all of the proof he has given, God, through the Apostle John, in John chapter 11, records for us the greatest miracle of all. The resurrection of someone from the dead. So, was it done to convince Was this resurrection done to convince or was it done because of Jesus' compassion for his friends? In other words, were these the reasons for this miracle? Was it to convince people that he was Jesus or, or was the Christ or was it done to simply out of compassion for the friends he had? And I want to submit to us tonight that neither of those are the primary reasons for this miracle. Neither convincing nor compassion are the primary reasons because if it was the primary reason to convince an unbeliever to believe, if it's the primary reason to convince the religious leaders that he was who he said he was, then it was unsuccessful. Because in the end, in John chapter 11 and verse 53, you'll notice, From that day on, they planned together to kill him. If it was meant to convince them to believe, they certainly weren't convinced. The Pharisees and so many people today are not convinced. And they even decide with the Pharisees that Christ is not who he said he is. Just want to get rid of the truth. So convincing unbelievers wasn't the issue. And if the primary reason was to show compassion for his friends, then that too seems to fail, at least on a surface reading of this text, because Christ waited two days longer after he was informed about the sickness of his friend, whom the text says he loved. I mean, after all, if you got a call about some people that you love that they were very sick, in fact, this call basically is they're on their deathbed, you need to come quickly, you certainly wouldn't put the phone down and go, yeah, that was a phone call about my friend who's sick, I'm going to wait two more days. That wouldn't be very compassionate. But Christ waits two days after he hears about the news to go and be with his friends. That surely doesn't seem to exemplify compassion. The Apostle John is very clear as to the motive. It's very clear as to why this miracle is here. And I think it's twofold. He says in verse 4, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. There's one motive. That the Son of God may be glorified by it. There's the second motive. That God would be glorified and that the Son would be glorified. And through the Son's glorification, the Father is glorified. Because the Father and the Son are one. That is the message of John chapter 11. That is the emphasis of John chapter 11. That we would go away from John chapter 11, not with the reality that, oh, gee, listen, Jesus raises the dead. That's wonderful. That's great. But in that reality, God is glorified. Because Jesus is glorified. 
And it's in light of those truths that belief or rejection comes. Now as I said tonight, I want to begin to look at this text by looking at just the first six verses. And I've outlined them this way. And I'll give you my outline for this. One, I want us to look at the people involved. One, the people. And that will be verses 1 to 2. And we'll only get to that tonight, but I'll give you the whole outline. The people. Two, the problem. The problem. That's in verse 3. Three, the purpose. The purpose, verse 4, and I've kind of given that to you, the overall purpose of this entire thing. And then four, the perplexing thought. The perplexing thought, verses 5 and 6. There's a whole lot we can learn from each one of those aspects. And so because of that, I just want to move slowly. And like I said tonight, I just want to begin with the people involved. The people involved and see what we can glean about Christ for our life to solidify our own belief and maybe even to impel others who don't believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ as they have seen in their own lives as they interacted with Christ. You notice in verses 1 and 2 there are three names mentioned and they are all from the same family. There is Mary. Of course we have a little bit of a description of her. There is Martha and then there is Lazarus. And of those three, of those three siblings, it seems that this miracle had more impact on Martha than it did on anybody else. Now, somebody might come up afterward and say, well, it impacted Lazarus pretty big, didn't it? (laughs) True. True it did, but my emphasis is the other side. In fact, you could almost say, I think, that the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead was the convincing element that changed Martha's life. See, we like to think, well, maybe Jesus rose or or, or did this miracle in order to convince the unbelievers. I want to tell you that Jesus did it to help Martha in her life. If we were to describe Martha's life and personality, we would have to categorize categorize it, I think, by the word service. Service. Right? When we think of Martha, when we think of the stories of Martha, when we think about Martha's life, we think about service. When Martha's name is mentioned in the Bible, it is primarily associated with some kind of service. And sadly, oftentimes in a derogatory way. Right? She's, She's certainly a servant, but there's always some kind of derogatory element attached to Martha. For example, I want us to go back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Because we find the account of Jesus entering a certain village there. Luke chapter 10 in verse 38. Here's what it says. Now, as they were traveling along, he, that is Jesus, entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, the word there, welcomed, is, is to receive kindly. She, she was the kind of person who would welcome a stranger. She, she's the kind of person who wanted to serve others. 
Jesus had just spoken in Luke chapter 10 to a lawyer previously, uh, one of the Sadducees, one of the people who knew the law well. He had just spoken to him concerning what must I do, the man said, in order to gain eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? And of course, that the account in Luke chapter 10 leads Jesus through this discussion all the way to, in the end, where he gives the illustration that we like to use all the time as, a, as the primary story when it's just an illustration of the Good Samaritan. Jesus uses that illustration to show the lawyer that if you're going to try to live according to your legalistic rules, if you're going to try to have salvation according to what you do, then you better be perfect at it. Then you better do it flawlessly. You better do it without fail at any kind of level. And then Jesus gives him the illustration of of the Good Samaritan and he says, well, gosh, you know, then i got to go. Jesus says, who do you think the neighbor was? And he says who he says, and Jesus says, then you go and do the same. And of course, knowing that that man's not going to do that, he revealed his heart to him. Well, this is on the heels of that. And he had spoken to that lawyer about how to have eternal life, and then he enters this village where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. It's the town of Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that Martha welcomed him into their home for a meal. Just a note, by the way, Lazarus is not mentioned in this account. His name is mentioned there. Uh, or we know that this is the Martha who's the sister of Lazarus, but his name isn't even mentioned there. But Mary is found in this account, and she's found to be at the feet of Jesus Christ while Martha is busy serving. Now, if you've read the story before, and I'm sure you have, then you know that Martha begins to reprimand Mary for not helping. But she doesn't go to Mary, she goes to Jesus, and she tries to use Jesus as the hammer upon her sister's head. Look at it with me, verse 40. Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. Service for the needy. That's what that words mean there. She was distracted with her service for the needy. Jesus was, in her mind, needy, and she was distracted with service for Him. And she came to Him and said, Lord, you not, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. She wanted Jesus to be the hammer upon her own sister's head. Is she serving? And Jesus simply answers her with those familiar words in verse 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary. Really, one. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. I find it interesting. Jesus is not saying that serving is a problem. He's not saying that at all, but rather that because Martha is getting all worked up about it, because Martha is so anxious about all the serving, so much so that in fact that she's become unloving to other people while she's serving. 
She's convinced herself that in her service she's doing a great thing, and yet while in her service she's not loving to other people that she's supposed to be serving. That was the problem. Jesus was just one guest in the house. And Martha was so consumed with it, she wanted Mary to leave the guest until all the chores were done. You say, well, why Why do you bring that up? Why do you bring all that up? Because this was Martha, get this, before John chapter 11. This is Martha prior to the sickness of her brother. This is how Martha lived and thought before Jesus interacted in the moment and was glorified by the Father through the raising of Lazarus. Now let's go back to Martha in John chapter 11. Actually, let's go to John chapter 12. Let's go to the Martha after John chapter 11. You can also find this in Mark 14 and Matthew chapter, Matthew 26. Again, the setting is Bethany. Yes, the setting is their home uh, or, or the area. It's not the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's the home of Simon. Uh, in Mark's account, he tells us that it's Simon the leper, possibly someone who Jesus had healed from his leprosy. And there's a dinner about to take place. And look at what John says in John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Which Lazarus is this? Oh, this is the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Well, that's all John chapter 11. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. Sounds similar to... Luke chapter uh, 10, Martha's serving, busy about what she's doing, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Stop there for a moment. Now think with me about this. Before, it was Jesus who was there. This is before Lazarus had been risen from the dead. Now it's after that fact, and It's not just one guest in the house. In fact, it's not even her house. This is a large group of people. It is just prior, in fact, to Jesus being arrested for the crime of claiming to be God. And so he had with him the disciples, 12 disciples. He had with him Simon the leper, That's whose house they're in. And Mary and Martha are there. Lazarus is there. Jesus is there. There are at least 17 people now in this house, if you count Martha with it. And it is Martha who is serving them. And yet, she doesn't seem to be all worked up about it. She doesn't seem to be complaining at all about it. Before, she only had Christ. And she was indignant that someone wasn't helping her serve. 
Now she has as many as 17 people if she counts herself. And yet, seemingly, she's not troubled about it at all. In fact, she's not even in her own home. She's not even using the utensils that would be familiar to her. She's not troubled about it at all. What changed? What changed in just a few short verses? Well, I believe that it was the event of the resurrection of her brother Lazarus. I believe that's where her eyes were opened as to who Christ truly was. She learned to take her mind off self and have it dwell on him. Before the raising of Lazarus, Martha had her mind on self. In Luke chapter 10, she's thinking of self. She didn't have it on Christ. She didn't have it on the welfare of her sister. She didn't have it on the welfare and care of those around her. And because she had her mind on self, guess what? She felt abused. She felt taken advantage of. She felt that she was mistreated, that she was underappreciated, that she needed to be recognized, that somebody needed to acknowledge the fact that she was doing all of this by herself. But later, after the resurrection, she's different. When her mind is on Christ, guess what? She just serves with joy. It wouldn't matter for Martha if there was a hundred people in the house. She just wanted to serve Christ. It's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to do when we think about our own life, compare ourselves in that way. If you have the gift of service, it's easy for us when we're in that to think of ourselves. To serve ourselves and wonder why no one notices. But the question we have to ask is not who is noticing. The question we have to ask when we're serving is rather who am I serving? When we're engaged in our Christian ministry, when we're engaged in employing the gifts that God has given us, We have to ask the question, who am I really serving? Are you serving self? Are you serving self? Are you trying to to build up your reputation? Are you trying to build up your accolades? Are you trying to build up a, 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 a panel of people who will come around you and say, Oh, you're such a wonderful person. Are you serving yourself or are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ and Him only? You see, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Because if we're serving ourselves, you know what happens? Every little detail, every little thing begins to bother you. Every little thing that you notice that others may not be doing or that others are doing that seemingly is going against you or that seemingly they're receiving more praise than you or more acknowledgement than you. Every little thing begins to bother you. But if you are serving Christ, then you'll simply just consider your service a joy. Just jump in and you serve even if no one ever helps. You know why? 
Because you are not serving them. You're serving Christ by serving them. You see the perspective? And when you serve Christ, it's simply about Christ. It's not about you anymore. It's just about Christ. Martha saw Christ for who He is in that moment in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises her brother from the dead. And it changed Martha's life. So that's Martha. Let's take a look at Lazarus. Lazarus. He's mentioned here in John chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. But each time that he's mentioned, each time that the gospel writers mention Lazarus, they never record any of words that Lazarus ever spoke. Lazarus never says anything. Not even after he's raised from the dead, it seems. At least in the writers of the Gospels, we have no recordings of Lazarus saying anything after he raises from the dead. I find that very interesting. It seems to me that if I had a guy who had been raised from the dead, even if I was God in some kind of way, I would want him to speak. It seems like he could do a good job saying what took place. Yet, in the Gospels, we have nothing. I find that interesting. Mary speaks. Martha speaks. Sometimes when she shouldn't. But Lazarus never speaks. And yet, I find it amazing and I find it incredible and I find it to be a a, a testimony of the grace of God that even though we have no recorded word of Lazarus, his life speaks loudly. Go back to John chapter 12. Because the life of Lazarus has become a great witness for Jesus Christ. Lazarus' life preaches with loud voice. And where we could identify with Martha as a servant, that was her character, that was her nature, that was her gifting. I'm going to identify Lazarus as an evangelist. But an evangelist with his life. And I would only say that with his life only because I have no recorded words. John says in John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. You say, why would the Pharisees want to kill Lazarus? Well, first, because Jesus had raised him from the dead. And everybody knew it. I mean, we have the internet to get the news out. They had word of mouth. This would have spread like wildfire. Funerals in those days were attended as public events. 
They were normally attended by the whole town and even surrounding towns who knew people from that town. So there would have been a lot of people. And that is why in chapter 11 you read about others following Martha and Mary as they mourn for their brother when he dies. And there were many at their house. You read that. It's a large event in the, in the Middle Eastern culture. Funerals are huge. It's very, very public. But now that he was alive, it wasn't just people from their town and from small surrounding towns. This is now people from the surrounding area. Uh, I mean, Bethany had become now the, the, the tourist destination. Let's go see this guy who was raised from the dead. I mean, he'd been four days in the grave, right? Initially in Jewish thought, and we'll talk about this as we go through, but I'll mention it now. In Jewish thought, when someone was put in the grave, the, the idea was that the soul hovered over the body in, in the minds of, of some of the Judaizers, that the, the soul would hover over the body for three days. After three days, the soul was gone, so they were really dead after that. Lazarus was in the ground. It says in the text, four days. Completely dead. No hope of soul returning. And just the sight of him would have been a testimony to Christ. So that's one thing that the Pharisees would have hated. But I believe more than that was the fact that Lazarus identified with Christ. Not only would his life just here, here's the guy who was raised from the dead, and that would have irritated the Pharisees, and we read that at the bottom. They wanted to put Lazarus to death because on account of him the Jews were believing. Uh, there's an evangelistic reality to the story. But I think Lazarus identified with Christ because wherever Christ was and whatever happened with Christ, he wanted to be part of it. Lazarus wanted to be there. His life was now intimately identified with Christ, so much so that those who hated Christ also hated Him. Now, I was thinking about that, and I, I said, boy, you know, that's really amazing to me as I think about my own life. Even though we haven't yet been raised physically from the dead, right? We're, we're not Lazarus in the sense that we haven't been raised physically from the dead. Lazarus is one of the very few who was at that time. And yet, if we trust God by faith, if we as Christians hope in Christ, trust God by faith, then we have been raised up with Christ, the Bible tells us. We have been spiritually raised from the dead. And listen, that is no less of a miracle than the very miracle we have in John chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead physically. Your spiritual resurrection is just as miraculous. You were just as dead. The Bible says that before believing, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But by faith, God made us alive together with Christ. There's the resurrection transaction of Ephesians 2. You were dead. You were made alive. That's resurrection. That's a miracle. So the question that we have to ask ourselves tonight is this. If we are a Christian, then we have been made alive. We have been raised spiritually. That is a reality of our life. We have been just like Lazarus. 
We have been raised from the dead. So does our life give evidence to that reality? In other words, is our life so openly identified with the one who raised us that where he is and what he is doing is where and what I want to be doing also? You see, each of us should be able to give a verbal witness for Christ, even if we're not gifted evangelists. Each of us should be able to tell others the testimony of our own life and who we were before Christ and who we are now after Christ and the reality that it's Jesus that made it all happen. That's the simplicity of giving a gospel presentation. We share people our testimony. We, we are witnesses of what God did for our life. Each of us ought to be able to give a simple testimony of that, even if we're not gifted in evangelism. But we all must be careful that our lives continually demonstrate the reality that Christ made us alive. Our lives ought to be a continual testimony, regardless if we ever open our mouths, it ought to be a continual testimony that Jesus Christ has in fact raised us from the dead so that others might turn to Him and believe. So that when others see us, they go, what happened to you? I was talking with Martha Peace Friday before she came down here for the conference and was asking her some things about her own life. And she said, you know, it was interesting. Some time ago I, I, I went to, uh, I don't know, it was some, some kind of thing she went to and there were friends from, from school years ago that were there. And, and one gal she used to know really close to, but they had kind of been separated over the years and, and didn't really see each other. And she saw this gal, and the gal said to her, you know, you weren't much of a student in school, and I've seen you wrote a lot of books. What happened to you? Right? That's, that's the issue, isn't it? What happened to you? That's what people ought to be asking us because we're so identified with Christ. We're so identified with Him that we want to be with Him. We want to be doing what He's doing. We want to be with His people. People say to us, Who are you? Or are our lives a contradiction of that very proclamation? You see, our lives can't be a contradiction of our words. We say we believe in Jesus Christ. Or are our lives a reflection of that? I think Lazarus was. I think that's why they wanted to kill him. Because wherever Lazarus was, Jesus was. Wherever Jesus was, Lazarus wanted to be. He just wanted to be involved with Jesus. So there's Martha, the servant. There's Lazarus, the evangelist. And then third, there's Mary. Mary, I'll just call her devoted. Devoted. I say devoted because Mary was continually at the feet of Jesus, at least the history and the accounts that we have. In fact, in Luke 10, while Martha is rebuking her to Jesus as Mary is sitting there, she's sitting at the Lord's feet listening to what he's saying. She's devoted. In Luke chapter 11... Verse 32, it says there 
For when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. She fell at his feet. She was pleading with Jesus about her brother in a prostrate prostrate position. Boy, there's a Freudian slip. You see, Martha, she says the same thing earlier, and yet it comes across as a complaint to the Lord. And yet Mary seems to express belief. Martha says the same thing as Mary did in verse 32 just a bit earlier, and yet she says it with the sense of disdain, a sense in which She doesn't really believe, and yet Mary seems to express belief. Then in the home of Simon the leper, back in Luke chapter 10, or, or I'm sorry, in John 12, she's at the feet of our Lord. She's anointing him with perfume. It's the same in Luke. Why? Because John tells us that Mary understood that Jesus was going to die. In fact, you go to John chapter 12 and verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You say, well, how did she know he was going to die? Well, Jesus verifies that she knew because Jesus says in verse 7, Labor alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Did you ever wonder... Out of all of the people with Christ, Mary was the one who understood what was to take place. You ever wondered about that? Why her? Why Mary? And I think the answer lies in the fact that Mary spent so much time learning at the feet of Jesus. I think that's why she understood Mary spent all the time she could learning at the feet of the only one who could give her absolute truth. And I believe that's why she had no problem sacrificing so much for Christ. Mary understood from the words of her Savior that he was going to die for sin. And Mary had no problem giving her hall to serve and hear him. You say, now why do you come to that conclusion? Well, for one, the perfume that she poured on Christ was extremely costly. According to Mark's account, it tells us that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. And of course, if you don't know money systems back then, that doesn't sound like a whole lot until you understand one denarii was an entire day's wage. So she could have been sold for 300 days' wages, almost a year's salary. In those days, a work day was 12 hours. And so I thought, well, I wonder how much that would be. So I translated that information into our modern day. If you take a very minimum wage of just $8 an hour, I think you can make more of that at Walmart now. 
Let's just take $8 an hour and you multiply it by 12 hours, you get $96 for a day's wage. Not bad. Now multiply 96 by 300. $28,800. $28,800. Now from time to time, I was thinking about this, I said, wow, that's a lot of money. From time to time, I buy my wife perfume, but there's no way I want to spend $28,800 on perfume. That's an incredible price. And yet, Mary is willing, willing to spare it for her Lord. In other words, Mary gave her most valuable possession. The thing she owned that uh, was most valuable to her, she gave it up so completely that she even broke the container that it came in. Nothing was going to be held back from Mary for her Lord. Nothing. And when I thought about that, I thought, how crushing that is to just think about that reality for my own life. How crushing it is to think about Mary and her devotion to her Lord. I had to wonder about the devotion I have for the Lord in my own life. I think it's an appropriate question for us tonight as we... Think about these things. Have I devoted my most precious possessions to the glory and honor of my Lord? Have you given yourself in every way? What about your family? Are you holding some of that back? Have you surrendered your job? time to Christ? Have you, have you shattered your own grasp on your own pride and your own desires? The things that you want from life, the things that, that you're pursuing in life, have you, have you just shattered your grip on those and just offered them to Christ? What is it that you're holding back from the Lord? That's the question. You see, when we give it all to Christ, like Mary, just like the perfume, guess what happens? The fragrance of that fills the room. And everyone is blessed by our devotion to Christ. You see, when we hold nothing back and we just say, Lord, I'm just going to give it all to you. I'm going to offer it all to you. You do with it what you wish. It's, it's for you. It's for your glory. It's for your honor. When our lives are that, guess what? The essence of that permeates and everyone is blessed. I think that's what we see there in Luke chapter or, or John chapter 12 and verse 3. Mary takes the perfume, anoints the feet of Jesus with the very aspect of her life that is her own glory. She wipes his feet with her hair and everyone is affected by the essence. So here are three people. John chapter 11. Here are three people all different, all of the same family, and yet all profoundly affected 
when they came in contact with Jesus Christ. And so the question and lesson for us tonight is to simply ask, are we like them? Are we like them? Have you been affected by your contact with Jesus Christ? Maybe you're a Martha. Some of us are, literally. Maybe you've learned that your service is only worthwhile when you do it for Christ rather than self. Maybe you're Lazarus. Maybe you're just quiet. You live, and yet what you identify with speaks very loudly. Can others see that you are with Christ and that He's truly changed you? Maybe you're a Mary. You're totally devoted to Christ, and through that you become a blessing to other people. Praise God. interesting you know I've been all over the world and every country has memorials every country has their shrines and in Mark chapter 14 Jesus says that Mary's devotion would be remembered everywhere the gospel is proclaimed the greatest memorial of all is a life completely devoted to Jesus Christ and we'll get to the other things next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for a look at just these three lives. Really kind of a dancing around the, the real happenings of the event just to kind of see a history of the people involved. And yet there's so much there about you that we can learn. So much there about our interaction with you and our salvation in you that ought to change us. Lord, I trust that you would impact us in the way you impacted these three. That what I've said here tonight by your grace, what I've learned from you, would not simply be for me words, but would be indeed the outworking of your spirit upon me and each one here, Lord, they would think about these things and allow that to impact them so that we would be a memorial to you, that our lives would be a memorial, whether we're serving, whether we're sharing Christ with a consistent life of proclamation about who we identify with, or whether we're simply devoting ourselves to you in every way. May our lives be a complete, full testimony that you are indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that others, by believing in you, might have eternal life. We thank you for these things and for what they will accomplish for us. Honor your name in them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.